BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, June 27th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back neighbor of the year as voted by the Ben Jarofsky show, Sam Holloway. Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink. If it's something you can look for, you can look for it at ChicagoReader.com. And if it's Ben Jarofsky related, just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Smoky Shy Tuesday, and here's why. Because we're the smokiest city in America. No, in the world. As I speak, Chicago is number one in the world for bad pollution. Hey, listen, guys, it's been a rough time for Chicago. We're getting bashed by MAGA left and right. So let's let's celebrate being number one in anything. I must confess, I have a confession to make here. I was unaware that the pollution is so bad in Chicago because I don't pay attention to the weather. I was explaining this to my guest who's patiently waiting in line, Sam Holloway. He's my neighbor and dear friend, comes on the show uh, for a leftist perspective that Chicago desperately needs from time to time. Uh, And I was explaining to him, I go through life just when I'm walking around, just in general, I go through life utterly inside of my brain. It's like I'm writing articles in my head. I'm writing newsletters in the head. I'm writing books in my head. I'm thinking about things in my life from like 50 years ago, wondering if I had done X or Y, would life be different? I'm obsessing about the Bulls. Will they sign Derrick Rose? I mean, I'm really just like, there's all kinds of clutter in there that I'm just always arranging and thinking about and repacking. And so I'm not paying attention to stuff like the weather. It's not that I'm better than the weather. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I have different things going on in my head. So I don't pay attention to the weather. One time, uh, I've told this story many times. I walked around with a dear friend who is like me, never pays attention to the weather, in a hurricane. And we were talking and wondering why it was raining so much. Anyway, so I was unaware until, uh, shout out, Joshua Smizer, DeLeon, dear friend of this show, dear friend of mine, sent me a, t- a, t- a text this morning, uh, apropos to absolutely nothing I'm about to talk about, saying uh, that we have the... Uh, the worst air quality in the world. I didn't believe them. So I went on the internet and all of a sudden I realized there was one article after another about it, including this headline in Cranes. Chicago currently has the worst air quality in the world. Cranes, Chicago business, breaking news. They're way on top of the story. And then I saw Block Club had it. CBS News had it. Sun Times had it. You know, and then I started thinking like, how long before Cranes and the Sun Times and the Tribune Start blaming this on Mayor Johnson, you know, or asking Mayor Johnson, what's he what's he going to do about it? Now, I know you all know the smoky air quality has to do uh, with the fires in Canada. 
and uh, the wind blowing the smoke our way. About a month ago, or no, about two weeks ago, or a week ago, whatever it was, it was in New York City. That wasn't our problem. We were walking around like, we didn't do anything. We're cool. I'm going to go to Millennium Park and watch the jazz concert in New York. That's not my problem. I don't live there. Typical Chicago attitude. Toward the Actually, everybody's that way. You know, if it's not in your front steps, you don't worry about it. But somehow it's now on Chicago. And coverage, news coverage being news coverage, it's only a matter of time before Cranes, the Sun-Times, and the Tribune ponders. How is this affected by Mayor Brandon Johnson's election? What is he going to do about it? Is he going to include the business community in his decision? Because it's very important that the business community be sitting at the table when decisions on our smoky air quality be made. Everything they do is they blame Brandon Johnson or they like, Throw it at him. What are you going to do about it, Mayor? Yeah, you wouldn't be Mayor so bad. Yeah, Mr. Lefty. This is their moment. I just want to point something out as a lefty. I've been living in the city of Chicago for, I got to do the math, 40, 42 years. We had a five-year experiment with a lefty mayor. That's called Harold Washington. Other than that, I've been living under the regime of rights, rightists and centrists. Not quite sure what the difference is. Maybe Sam Holloway can explain it to me. But anyway, people who are definitely not of the lefty persuasion. And I never recall Crane, Sun-Times, Tribune going, well, centrist mayor, what are you going to do about fill in the blank? I mean, they dutifully kept track of all the scandals and corruption, you know. But they pretty much joined these dumb mayors like for the big decisions, like their budgets they celebrated or, you know, their like wacky schemes like the Olympics they uh, celebrated or the way they looted the taxpayers with the TIF program they celebrated. I never like saw any of them critique the, the like the worldview of right wingers and centrists. And the reality is, ladies and gentlemen, breaking news here, they have a different worldview than me. And probably Sam, I'll let him speak for himself when he comes on. A different worldview. And I, I remember like it came clear to me one point many years ago, my beloved reader was in the midst of one of its <laughs> many bankruptcies. <laughs> Sad story of journalism in the, in the 21st century. Uh, it was sometime after the original owners sold it and then the outfit they sold it to went bankrupt and it was taken over. I forget who took this over, ladies and gentlemen. Don't hold me accountable for the, the ins and the outs of the reader ownership changes in the age of capitalism. But one of the new like trustees of the reader and I bumped into each other at the reader office. And it's the first time we'd ever met. Uh, and I, he was from the old, he used to work at the Tribune, this guy. Somehow or other, he had found his way to the reader. It was a brief thing. He was gone soon thereafter. It was always changes at the top. And he shook my hand and he said, uh, oh, yeah, you're the guy who writes all those TIFF articles. Nice to meet you. And I go, well, it's nice to meet you, sir. He goes, so you and this thing about the TIFFs, it, it's, it's, you don't really think we should get rid of them you know i mean it's just like a little like uh, i don't know uh, transparency issues right that's your only objection to this thing right 
I think it's kind of like he just wanted to be reassured that I don't know what I wasn't Mao. I I, <laughs> I think I may have been the first. <laughs> I think I may have been the first lefty he ever met. You know, he wanted. He's like checking me out. Like, does he have horns? Hmm. And uh, I was like, well, you know, actually, it's the transparency. Believe it or not, is the least thing I find offensive about this program. I mean, I know we're all supposed to like pray to the God of transparency, but to me, it's the inequity. The fact that we're spending billions of dollars that are supposed to go to poor neighborhoods in rich neighborhoods. That's the part that really irritates me the most. The fact that we conceal it is like secondary to that. If you follow what I'm saying, the fact that we're not honest about the program and it's dishonesty is not as important to me as the inherent dishonesty in the program. That dude looked at me like I was from Mars. And he just said, well, nice to meet you. And I don't think I ever had a conversation with again. And he didn't fire me. So there's that. So there's a worldview difference, I think, between people who look at the world the way I do uh, and people from the mainstream. I've come to realize that with time. I recognize it. You know, I, uh, I deal with it uh, as best I can. And I still live in a city, by and large, where <laughs> the mainstream centrist to the right thought dominates. Somehow or other, this city, in this last mayoral election, elected Brandon Johnson a person who is to the left of center. And I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I've known Brandon for a long time. I know where he comes from, the Chicago Teachers Union. These aren't even real lefties. <laughs> I, I'm going to bring, Sam will bring on, he'll speak to this himself. But I know lefties. I've been around them my whole life. And what's gotten mainstream Chicago so afraid is not even a real lefty. It's like we're Democrats should be. That's Brandon Johnson. That's, in my opinion, that's where Democrats should be. So, for instance, for my example, yes, Democrats should worry about a city being dishonest with its TIF books. But they should be more outraged that the program that's supposed to help poor people is instead being used to help rich people. That, I believe, is where Democrats should be. Uh, and my guess is it's going to take a while before folks in the city move to where I am on this issue, if they ever get there. That's how far alienated the left is from the general discourse. Anyway, uh, I am staying indoors with the smoky weather. I have the windows closed per my wife's instructions because she says it's really dangerous out there. And without further ado, I'm going to bring on the great Sam Holloway, who I am sure is also uh, protected in his home with the windows shut. Sam, welcome back. Thank you, Vince. Good to be back. Um, yeah, the windows are closed here. 
All right. Before I uh, allow uh, Sam to continue with the conversation with me, I'll do what I always do when Sam comes on the show. He says, I don't have to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. In addition to being a dear friend of my show and myself and my neighbor, Sam Holloway works for the city of Chicago as a firefighter. And that's essentially how I first met him. We'll get into that story again because it's relevant to what we're going to talk about. City of Chicago, do not punish Sam for the views he expresses. He has a First Amendment right to express those views without being fired, moved to a distant uh, police station, have his pension taken away from him, uh, whatever else. You might do. I know uh, in a mayor Johnson regime, it's less likely that this would happen as to say under a mayor Rahm regime or a mayor Lightfoot regime or a mayor Daly regime. But nonetheless, Brandon Johnson, if Sam Holloway disagrees with you, do not punish him for that fact. All right, Sam, I think I think that you're safe now, right? Thanks. Uh, <laughs> before we say anything else, I have to give a shout out to my friend Harold Crooks. Uh, I just had dinner with with him and his lovely wife, the artist, a very brilliant artist named Medry McPhee. And you may, you have never met Harold Crooks, Ben, but it's because of you that I met Harold Crooks because he uh, wanted to interview me for the documentary he made a few years ago about uh, one of the things that I'm sure is close to your heart about taxation and democracy. It was called The Price We Pay. And he came to me because he read your article in The Reader. So I, of course, I mentioned you to him while we were having dinner. It was a lovely time. It was good to see him only very briefly because we were very busy in New York and didn't have a lot of time. So wait, time out. The article I wrote about you, yes. that article he saw. Oh, he saw that and he called me up or contacted me somehow. I think it was back when both of us were on Facebook. He sent me a message and asked if I'd be interested in being interviewed. And I was, and of course I had to ask my wife, Rebecca for permission. And she thought it was the funniest thing. So, uh, of course, that and that took off and uh, it was a great experience. And he's a wonderful guy. Uh, so is his wife, a wonderful person. And it was a really fun process being involved in that movie. Uh, he's got another one out, by the way. I don't know if there's any artists in your audience, but if there are, it's a movie about the if you're in the art world, you, you probably know the name. His name's David Hammonds. Ben, you may know something that he created. You know, you've, you've seen that African-American flag. It's like the American flag, only with the black, green, and, and red colors. Yes. That's David Hammond's piece of oh. artwork. Brilliant, brilliant, somewhat enigmatic. And Harold Crook spent years making a documentary about him. It's wow. brilliant. If you can get a hold of it, I would suggest seeing it. That's my end of my plug. All right. Uh, that's a great plug. And it segues into where we'll start. Uh, we have, I have a number of topics uh, that I want to talk about with Sam. And uh, as I do with every guest, right about an hour or so before the show, I called Sam up to go through, the, just briefly go through the topics. I said, Sam, let's not do the show before the show. And then uh, 45 <laughs> minutes later, I go, Sam, stop. We got to go. We were in the middle of a great conversation about Ukraine, ladies and gentlemen, which we may, we're going to have to do a whole show about this because it's just fascinating. Anyway, all right, and it's all all of its dimensions. So I met Sam. God, it's been about thirteen years, and uh, my wife told me about him that this was this guy who challenged Rom. And Sam is a firefighter. And in 2011, I love telling the story. Mayor Rom was all his glory. Uh, on many fronts, closing schools, closing clinics, gutting li cutting the library budget. He was going to. Yeah, show those librarians uh, and and threatening city workers. They was going to get rid of their pensions. 
And he was doing this as a Democrat. We wonder why we're losing votes, Democrats, okay, in swing states. He was doing this as a Democrat, and he marched into Sam's firehouse, and he announced, you may not like this, but I'm going to cut your pensions. Of course, he had bodyguards. I was like, God, he's a tough guy. But no, he had the police bodyguard just in case. Uh, and uh, Sam told him, uh, well, you know, that you could just uh, slap a LaSalle tax uh, on the profits of the markets on LaSalle Street and then make more than enough money uh, to uh, fund pensions. And Rom said, uh, if you uh, want to do that, you can get elected mayor or something like that. And uh, the point is, he essentially gave Sam uh, his middle finger on that suggestion. Uh, and uh, anyway, so I um, go ahead. I, I do. I need to clarify something. Uh I, I love the way you tell that story. It's, it sounds really exciting. Um, just want to make one thing clear. Uh, as I recall, Rahm Emanuel was actually very polite about how he brought the subject up. Uh, and, and I think that's an important distinction to make because um, the difference between a fascist and a neoliberal might just be their etiquette. Uh, what Rahm Emanuel was proposing and the context in which he did it was entirely offensive, but his tone at the beginning was very respectful. It was very dignified. It was almost like paternalistic. I'm here to help you. you you've just buried one of your comrades. Oh, yeah. I spoke to the family and I'm here to help you and I'm going to explain why. Yeah. That's how he, that's what made me angry. And, and I, I'm not going to speak for what was going on inside the heads of my colleagues at that moment, but I, don't know that any of anyone else in the room was offended in the same way that I was. It's possible, but no one expressed it. Obviously, no one else. Well, but. I mean, it, to express any kind of opposition to a mayor, this is yes. why I always open up with what I. It, okay, to, to express any kind of disagreement with Mayor Rahm Emanuel at a right. moment like that, when you're a city employee, uh, it takes. A lot of guts. So I'm not going to uh, criticize a- any firefighters who didn't say anything. You know, I was like so astounded that you did it. That's why I told my wife, I got to meet this guy. And uh, <laughs> I mean, and then I remember putting in the article that I wrote, you know, I remember talking to you beforehand. Are you sure you want to go public with this? They're going to they're going to retaliate against you. And you go, no, they're not going to do anything. And they didn't. Um, but. The the larger point I want to make is Rom just totally scoffed at your suggestion as an alternative, mm-hmm. and he presented to you a challenge. And this is what has been going on in the city of Chicago for about thirty years now. Uh, they, he presented a challenge. He made a declaration: the pensions are going bust, and if we don't cut pension benefits to uh, the pensioners. The whole thing's going to go bankrupt. So we are essentially saving you by cutting you, which is the same thing he told the public school children of Chicago. I am saving you by closing your schools. They're always saving you when they do something hostile to you. You responded by saying, if you really, there's no need to cut our benefits, just raise the taxes, raise the LaSalle Street tax. And then he said to you, if you want to be the mayor, you could do that. Or if you want to do that, you could go run for mayor. And here's the point. Just recently, uh, Cranes had a headline about Brandon Johnson putting together a group to deal with pension issues. Because <laughs> this problem 
is still here, I guess. And there were no business representatives on that panel. And Cranes was outraged. No business reps. And I was like, what about Sam? Do you think Rahm Emanuel put Sam Holloway on the pension panel or his blue ribbon? Was there anyone remotely like you? Do you follow what I'm saying, Sam? Yes, yes. I understand. Um, this reminds me of a book I, I'm almost done reading. I was reading it on the planes, on the various flights that I had to and from New York. It's by... Uh, a local journalist named Kelly M. Hayes, along with uh, a, an organizer, uh, author named uh, Mariam Kaba, who was here for a while, is now based in New York, which I think is where they're, she's from. Anyway, um, there was speaking, there was a section of the book where they talked about violence and how in our society, particularly the mainstream, we characterize violence. And I, I think it was Ben Kingsley portraying uh, Gandhi in the movie, who said that poverty is the worst form of violence. And that that always stuck with me. I don't know that the actual Gandhi ever said it. It's possible. But it stuck with me because as, as these two authors were pointing out, it's very odd how we characterize certain things as violence. And what you're talking about, the slashing of, of defined benefit plans, um, the closing of public institutions that are mainly utilized by, you know, poor and working class people. Well, just I'll say the labor class in general. Um, that's not considered violence, in spite of all the harm it causes, and how un, ultimately unnecessary it is. That's the harm. You know, it's not considered violence. So the reaction by by these uh, sycophants for the for the uh, investor class is not surprising, because they feel insulted. They, in a sense, they feel like an act of violence has been done to them, because. They've not been allowed to have one of their shills be, to be part of this discussion process, which uh, we don't know. May or may not actually accomplish anything, may not lead to any changes. But they feel, but the very idea that they wouldn't be front and center as part of that process seems like violence to them. The, the, am I making any sense here? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that, that may be a bit of a, a reach, but I, I just think it just put me in back in the mind of when, when I was reading that book. And I think uh, there's a set of rules in their mind that exists for them. And then there's a set of rules for, for you know, us, the peons, that we're supposed to live under. And they accept all this as normal. To them, it's all one set of rules until someone violates it, either materially or in this case, uh, at least symbolically, then it's a, then it's something wrong. There's something wrong going on here. Mm -hmm. If it was a panel full of bankers and investors and hedge fund, you know, you know, whatever, that would be okay to them. Mm -hmm. They have no problem with that. You you just said it yourself. They they don't need they don't want anyone like me there. Oh no, I mean, um, it has always been a panel of ba of bankers or banker types uh, on these uh, and. Uh, blue ribbon panels. I mean, I, I remember at one point uh, in the early stages of um, Rahm had just been elected and one of his uh, I don't know, sidekicks, uh, they were they reached out to me. It was such a joke. Saying, I, they reached out to me because I think they just wanted me to feel like they were listening to me, which is a weird form of pa being patronizing, sort of like his being in the firehouse. And as soon as I wrote one column, denouncing him that was the end of it. anyway they go so who could you advise that we have on a panel 
to talk about TIFFs. We want to do a, like a have a, this is before he was sworn in, you know, but very important. And I was very skeptical of him because I didn't believe he actually wanted to change the way the TIF program works. I believe they wanted to give cover, you know what I mean? Like come up with some report that said they corrected it. Uh, and then I, so I suggested some names and he goes, no, that person's too political. And I'm like, <laughs> you mean they're on the wrong, a different political side than you? You follow what I'm saying? Everybody's yeah. political in the city of Chicago. But when you say political, you mean the wrong kind of politics. Uh, when, and when it's political for you, it's the right kind of politics. You follow me, Sam? Well, that's what anyone whenever, whenever someone says that, uses that word that way, that's what they mean. Anytime. Oh, you're, I don't want to talk politics. Well, you're. Yeah, <laughs> I I hear that at the firehouse frequently. Not as much with the group I'm working with now. They're not as as uh, reactionary as, as some of the crews uh, that I've been exposed to. But they'll spend the first ten minutes of the day in the kitchen or wherever with the TV blurring of Fox News or WGN, yelling at the screen about crime or this or that or the welfare. Who knows what you know? Yeah. But they don't. But then they'll say, you know, ten minutes later, don't talk politics at the firehouse. Yeah. No. What? Yeah, what you mean is, don't talk politics that disagree with yours. Yes. So yeah. It's so the Sam, same. it's very familiar. All right. So let me get at this uh, pension issue. Get your thoughts on this. Right. Um, so there's always been a movement uh, by uh, corporate Chicago, uh, civic Chicago, editorial Chicago, to deal with the quote unquote pension crisis. Uh, and that generally means cuts for pensioners. And then when I object to it, people say, but Ben, what do you care? You're not on a pension, you know, <laughs> so true, the reader pension. Uh, you're not on a pension. You're just, all you're doing is giving your hard-earned money to Sam Holloway, who will eventually be in a pension, or your mother. My mother was on a pension. And I have my response to that, but... Uh, why don't you uh, I'd love to hear your response uh, to that? A, um, the notion that somehow or other people, municipal employees who get pensions are living large off of people who aren't. Go ahead. Your thoughts. That's the crab in the barrel response. It's uh, everyone needs to get screwed and I'm going to claw you back to where I am. And you expect to hear it from the people who are getting over on the system to the point where they don't need a defined benefit. Uh, it's sad and pathetic, but still not that surprising when you hear it from people who really could use a defined benefit program, you know, a, a pension as it were, but it's, it's where that civic religion of individualism, rugged individualism, which is just totally false and not based in any, observable or measurable reality, but it's the civic, one of the civic, one of the tenets of, of civic religion of the United States of America, that we're all rugged individualists and you don't need to be at the government teat to, to prosper. Um, well, that hardly ever works for labor class people that works for the investor class and maybe some of the petty bourgeoisie who, uh, do the gatekeeping for the, the rich people, you know, to help keep the, the labor, the rest of the labor class down. But for the vast majority of people, that kind of approach is not really beneficial, but it's been drummed into our heads. We've been indoctrinated with it. 
So, and the fact that uh, defined benefits programs that still exist are all associated with labor unions. Um, and with some exception, the more lucrative professions that, that, have, that are unionized, let's just say, generally speaking, their politics tend to go from moderate to reactionary, uh, with some notable exceptions being the core caucus of the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, and some of the National Nurses United tend to lean a little bit to the left. But generally speaking, you look at things that, that we call unions like firefighters unions, the, the so-called unions of the cops, uh, even to some extent, the trades. There ain't a lot of lefties <laughs> organizing in those professions. No. <laughs> uh, you might have some yeah. lefties here and there, and yeah. you might actually have, for example, with the firefighters, they do actually vote for Democrats if the Democrats are going to, you know, take care of them, you know, fiscally or whatever, or pass laws or whatever that benefit us. But generally speaking, that's that's a self-interest thing. Philosophically, it, you know, most of the members tend to be at very best sort of like conservative moderates, mostly. And a lot of them are just out and out fascists. So that's what's I'm not going to say that's what's left of the labor movement or the the because you actually have a lot of really good agitation now, like the Amazon workers, the Starbucks workers, and a lot of other um, people who aren't quite making as much money who are, are just toughing it out and organizing right now. And that's really promising. But you're, you're not going to see them linking arms with cops and firefighters. And and to, I haven't heard of them doing it with any of the workers from the trades either. I'm sure there's some solidarity, solidarity at local levels in certain places, especially maybe with the trades, like the Teamsters are are pretty famous for doing labor actions in solidarity on occasion with, you know, some of the, the lower paid um, people who are trying to organize. But it's a very hostile, still a very hostile climate in this country for labor. And that means, and one of the things they've, they've done with that is to remove defined benefit plans from, from you know, from, from most professions, from most working people. So it's, and that it's been justified, people justified in their minds because we don't have the kind of political climate right now. There are people out there trying to fight against that. There, like I said, there's a lot of really some promising pockets and movements of people working against that. But generally speaking, there's, there's, we're still not at that point where there's enough organized agitation among the labor class to, to make those kind of changes where we can get more defined benefit programs, where we can have more rights for workers in, in a lot of these workplaces. We're not close to that yet. And uh, a lot of that is public policy. Um, and it's not just the Republicans that have created this mess. Uh, the Democrats have had a hand in it too, or as Rahm Emanuel would say, they've had a hand on the knife. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's sad to hear it from working from labor class people complaining about, you know, municipal pensions when they should be angry that they don't have the same. Yeah. That's generally my attitude about it. Like I wish I had it and good for him. He's got it. Uh, and better him than, I don't know, funding wars we're all over the world where my tax dollars could go. I'm going to uh, take a deeper dive into this so we can expose uh, 
the inconsistency of many of the pension critics uh, in our, um, our our civic debate. And I'll share this thought with you. I didn't even tell you I was going to bring this up, but the conversation has taken me here. So uh, I've been making fun of Cranes for their political view. we got to give a shout out to one of their very enterprising reporters, Danny Eckert, broke the story about how the developer Sterling Bay, who is the developer behind Lincoln Yards, which was an uh, upscale development on an ups- in a gentrifying, already gentrifying neighborhood, received a TIF handout of $1.3 billion, ROM's last act, significant act, as mayor of the city of Chicago. That project's really struggling, Sam. I don't know if you follow these things, but it's really struggling uh, because uh, the uh, office economy has changed. Not as many people working in offices, et cetera, and so forth. They're struggling. And uh, so they turned, the developer went, I'm not making this up, Sam. He went to the Chicago Teachers Pension Fund and asked them to invest in, uh, you're looking at me like, yeah, 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 I hadn't heard about this. This is, this is surreal and ask them to invest into the Lincoln Yards project and promise them the returns would be ex- excellent. They could get in at lower than the original investors, which means their return would be higher if they could save the project. He sold, he's trying to, he's trying to get them to, to invest uh, into a project that their members vehemently opposed. Only the, the main, most significant opposition to the Lincoln Yards uh, handout uh, came from the Chicago Teachers Union. And now they want the pension fund to bail them out. And because to a certain degree, despite all their moaning and groaning by uh, the civic community, the commercial community, the, the editorial community, pension funds are a source of money that they can make money off of. So on one hand, they're wailing, crying, like, I don't know, LeBron James, when a call doesn't go his way, uh, that they have to pay for people like you, put his life's on the line every day, ladies and gentlemen, he goes, puts out a fire. Uh, and on the other hand, it's like, well, you know, before I completely destroy your pension fund by undercutting it, hey, could you lend me some money at, you know, invest in this great upscale project in a neighborhood that doesn't need the handout to begin with? Please help me understand this. How could people be so brazenly hypocritical and inconsistent? Sam Holloway. Well, well why not? Because uh, the federal government has been basically uh, the people who we've had in charge of the federal government have basically doing, been doing the same thing with Social Security, basically robbing it blind to pay for all these pet projects and just money vanishing into thin air that's making a lot of rich people happy all over the world. Um, and they're the pundits are constantly telling us it's an entitlement program that's unsustainable, even though we are the ones paying into it and they're stealing from it or, you know, not putting the money into it as they should. So, yeah, I, I can see that. That gall kind of rising up from some rich dude who's. Uh, whose handouts aren't paying off the way that he expected them to. Uh, why not go go for broke? I mean, what's. What's going to stop them? You know, they'll just go, they'll say no. That's the worst that could happen to them. So, oh, yeah. they, they being the teachers, the pension exactly. will say no, right, right, right. say yeah. no, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's almost, it, it reminds me of that movie. I don't know if you ever saw it. It was pretty funny, uh, actually. Uh, it was uh, with Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg, where they played cops who were 
<laughs> you know what you're trying to talk about. What's it called? Yeah, like partners, the, the other uh, guy, the other yeah, guy, the other guy. I can't. I've seen it twice. I can't believe it. It's a. It is, I like that movie. It is a. It's kind of a, a an up modern classic because yeah. Will Ferrell really goes off the chain. But the plot of that movie is simple. Is kind of reminds me of what this guy tried to do. But uh, I mean, these are people who are used to having everything handed to them, and they'll swear they they earned every penny of it. And the way our our governmental structures are designed and populated. It's, you know, you can't really blame them for expecting it because it's all oriented towards them. Yeah. It's all geared toward people like that. The investors, they can't lose. They really can't. And every up and down these organizations, you see a company goes bust, you know, from some, some corporate raiders come in and, you know, I think we were talking about this earlier. They come up and buy up a perfectly decent company and then rob it blind, leverage it with a load of debt so that they can fatten their bottom lines. And, and again, I'm not an economist, so there's, I'm probably getting the details a little wrong, but essentially they load these places up with debt and mis intentionally mismanage them um, so that they can justify these huge payouts to the, uh, to the shareholders and the and the bonuses to the the, the bo executive boards and whatnot, and then the companies go bankrupt and all these working people are out of jobs and yeah. you know, and uh, if it even lasts long enough, you know the customers who are used to buying these products are getting substandard stuff and yeah, it, it's just a it's a mess, but it's intentional. It's not some law of nature that's at work here. It's a process. It's you know, and it's for the most part perfectly legal. As a matter of fact, one of the architects of this current regime is now our the president of the United States. You know, he he made it. He helped. You know, he was a huge supporter. In some cases, even on, uh, one of the authors of these policies that make it easy for these super rich people to just keep milking the the you know milking the public coffers to fatten their bottom lines, and they're screwing over working people, destroying companies, just. And it's all legal. Meanwhile, um, try try uh, getting out from under a, a student loan. Mm. You know, you, you know, you're, they will they'll chase you to the grave. Mm. They'll chase you beyond the grave to get their money. It's you know, it's everything's tilted in favor of you know concentrated wealth. All you know, everything, and. The only thing as, as labor class people we have is our numbers and our solidarity. And, you know, the people who, who are, you know, our, our ruling class, as some people on the like, left like to say, they've really gamed the system to where uh, our worst, our absolute worst settler colonial civic instincts are, are, are prominent. So we don't really... Uh, we don't really develop and, and cultivate the solidarity that, that we would need to defeat these people. Um, you know, and like I said before, you know, the cops, to some extent, firefighters and some of the, the trades, they're, they're sort of, they sort of epitomize that. Well, they've got theirs, you know, and in, mo and in vast majority of cases, you're, or you're not going to see them. Uh, lowering themselves to the level of the other, the, the lower peons to, to, to lock arms with them. And uh, yeah. So anyway, 
it's not accidental, not entirely. It's this is to some extent by design. Um, that's that's where we are. Well, I'll uh, follow up. Uh, you mentioned uh, companies uh, that buy other companies and squeeze them, squeeze them out for profits, and then let the companies uh, fall apart. Uh, one of those is in the news, and this uh, sort of underscores. I saw this article, and I, I neglect I didn't send it to you, but I'll just give the essence of it and get you to riff on it. Uh, and uh, so it was an article in the Chicago Sun-Times. How could sale of station affect Greyhound riders? Good article. I urge everybody to read it uh, by David Struitt uh, in today's bright one. So I'm reading this article and the Greyhound station at uh, 630 West Harrison, the old Greyhound station uh, is, is closing. So now there's a crisis. Like where will uh, the uh, passengers go? Where are you going to stay to catch the, the bus? Where are they going to drop you off, et cetera, and so forth? Uh, and I had never thought about Greyhound's decisions regarding on property as being connected to larger business transactions. It's never occurred to me. I'm just, I'm just reading this article. Uh, and then I will now, um, again, shout out to Dave Stewart. I'm going to read him this article. Uh, Greyhound lost ownership of 33 of its stations two years ago when the company was sold to Germany Flixbus. Never knew that. I never knew Greyhound wasn't owned by Greyhound. I'm not surprised. I just didn't know that. Greyhound's properties were sold separately last December to private equity group 20 Lake Holdings. Let me come up with these names. 20 Lake Holdings, comma, owned by Alden Global Capital. And the stations have been sold one by one. And I'm like, oh, my freaking God. Alden Global Capital is the outfit that purchased the Chicago Tribune. They're known for buying up news. They're like public enemy number one in the newspaper game. They buy up newspapers that are doing okay. You know, it's not an easy time for newspapers because all you blaming millennials now, all you millennials, you want it for free. Anyway, it's just a boomer rant. Just ignore me, millennials. Uh, and so uh, Alden Global, they buy newspapers. They squeeze them, Sam, make as much money as they can, and then let, sell them or let them die, whatever. And they're doing this with Greyhound stations. They're buying up Greyhound stations, and then they're selling them off to developers. In the case of the Greyhound station here in Chicago, it's going to be uh, developed. It's going to be there's going to be some like, uh, what is it, uh, some kind of a property. Uh, a developer may try to build two towers on the property, Cranes has reported. So now it's like, well, where are we going to put the, the Greyhound buses? Well, it's not our problem, says Alden, the company that owns the portion of the Greyhound portfolio that dealt with real estate. And then here's local alderman Bill Conway supports moving Greyhound Station elsewhere. Neighbors living in the gentrifying South Loop have complained to the rookie alder person about crime near the station. Last year, a Greyhound employee was fatally shot outside of the station. So now it's like the, the neighbors want it gone. The local alderman's going to use his clout to get rid of it. I'm like, what? How is this in the best interest of the city of Chicago to not have a centrally located bus system with a depot where people can wait to get on the bus where people have like uh again when they 
enter Chicago, they're close to transportation that'll take them north or south, uh, anywhere they want to go in the city of Chicago for whatever purpose. Sam, please help me how this is in the best interest of Chicago uh, to have an entity just like buying up bits and pieces of Greyhound and then selling it off individually for its own use. Okay, well, profits go. Well, let's let's examine your question. First of all, who is Chicago? When you say that, how does it benefit Chicago? Well, who is Chicago then? Whether that who is the Chicago that you're talking about that may or may not benefit, but although let's just say that would benefit from keeping the Greyhound station where it is. And I will tell you that's a labor class Chicago. That's poor people, people who can't afford or for various reasons, um, may. They, they won't they won't fly. They don't have a reliable vehicle to drive to where they need to go. So Greyhound is their way of getting around. These are people who live more, probably generally speaking, more at, at the margins of this neoliberal society. So they're disposable. Their needs are disposable. Um, transportation needs included. So uh, I... I'm trying to figure out, I've been through that area a few times because that, you know, that's where the fire academy is. And uh, I haven't been there a lot. I, I stay away from that area, generally speaking. But I'm trying to think, who lives over there? Who are these neighbors this guy's talking about? And I can't think of, like, any residential. Maybe there's some new ones. I know UIC is, like, right across the uh, expressway from the Greyhound station. but. I don't recall there being a huge concentration of residential units like right on top of Greyhound. Um, and when we're talking about crime, that word is really loaded. It has it's entirely a political construction. Um, uh, there was there's a big story that's still sort of going on. When we talk about crime, what do we mean? You know, again, the issues of harm and violence come into play. Those are you know, better descriptions, you know, but uh, so when they say crime, what are they talking about? I mean, people were getting shot all over the city. Uh, even ar around here, there's, there's been shootings, you know, in our area. So um, when they say crime, what they mean is poor people doing things that make them uncomfortable, you know, or the, even still the, just the presence of poor people in a conspicuous place uh makes them uncomfortable so they'll be happy to see it gone who cares about those people not being able to get where they need to go or making it harder on them that's not important those people don't they don't have any clout they're not generally probably not property owners you know so yeah forget it sell it off well, I, I think it's been all downhill since they moved to greyhound station out of downtown it was in downtown Chicago, mm -hmm. when I first moved here, right near the Daily uh, Center. Right. And so, uh, so let me ask you another question. Is Greyhound publicly owned or privately owned? Uh, I do not. I can look that up, but it's currently owned by this Flix bus. Greyhound, uh, the Greyhound service itself. Yeah, Greyhound lost ownership of, okay. of its stations two years ago when the company was sold to Germany-based right. so, Flixbus. Well, that was more a rhetorical question. Um, thank you for the answer. Um, but my, my point is, 
why is something that people depend on transport intercity transportation mm-hmm. in private hands in the first place why is it something that can be bought and sold at the whim of somebody that may never even set eyes on it physically you know i don't care where the capitalists are they're capitalists I, they're not going to be riding the bus they don't need it why should they have any control over it and I, and i gets and this gets into the issues of our our notions of private property and and how that tends to take precedence over human needs and when we talk about private property we're talking about accumulation exploitation and sacrificing whatever we need to to you know fatten that bottom line and that's something that which is inevitably only going to benefit a small number of people and everyone else is going to have to navigate it now the neighbors this alderman's talking about i'm assuming they exist maybe they're some of those people that live in the south loop not right on top of the greyhound station but you know maybe within a half mile of it mm-hmm. you know so probably not super wealthy people but with enough nickels to rub together that they think they're better than those people who ride greyhound so i can see some of them complaining about having to see the unwashed congregating in a place for too long and as we saw in you know, as as we know, uh, some of us understand that there are certain people who perceive, who who comp- who. Um, how should I put this? They equate the appearance of social discord or social unrest or social or the uglier, the less attractive parts of social inequality are all automatically, in their minds, made into a safety issue. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the presence of homeless people becomes synonymous with crime. The presence of poor people who can't afford a car or, you know, for various reasons, don't, don't want to fly or can't fly. That's automatically linked with crime mm-hmm. and safety. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe some of the neighbors did say something, but uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not really... Trusting well, this is an ongoing. Uh, this is this is an ongoing movement in this country uh, right now uh, to link poverty with. I mean, it, it's been going on for a long time, didn't right. more than just now. But link poverty with crime, dirt, grime, bad behavior, sordidness, and the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sent to you. I dutifully read, love this, the newsletter of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, one of the greatest basketball players who ever uh, played the game. He has a, a weekly newsletter that he does. I urge everybody to read it. For Very logical and precise in his thinking is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And I don't know if you saw the essay that he wrote regarding to uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida coming to uh, San Francisco. Uh, and he, I, he went there to... Uh, raise money for, uh but then he, he said within 20 minutes of the time he was in san francisco i gotta call this up uh he saw someone defecating on and on the public way uh, this is an issue in san francisco with people defecating in the public way this has been an issue that's been raised and talked about and the people in san francisco are like what are we going to do about this and there's it's a uh, there's a lot at stake there i don't mean to go down that path but 
guarantee you, Ron DeSantis, in 20 minutes going into San Francisco, did not see someone defecating on the sidewalk. He just made that up because he could feed that notion in people's mind that there's something going on in this city where Democrats live of disorderliness. And he's feeding. Go ahead, Sam. Okay, I was in New York City over this past weekend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was with my daughter. We were looking at schools. And uh, we, I love riding the subway. I love riding the public transportation. They, they have a great system in New York City. Uh, yeah, so there was this one subway station we entered into. And as it turns out, I, I, I went on the wrong side. Uh, we were going in the wrong direction. But on our way down into the station, someone had dropped a wicked deuce on the stairs going down into the station. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was impressive. <laughs> uh, but my first thought was yeah. was not. Oh, my God, what a horrible city. They have people roaming around taking dumps. My thought was, OK, this is a person who a did not have access to a public toilet when they needed to go. Possibly B was suffering from some kind of mental illness where or something where they did not feel comfortable finding a privately owned establishment that had a toilet that they could ask to use. Do you, do you follow me? Yeah. So the reason someone had taken the honk at the stairs, the reason someone had taken the honk and dropped 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 the honk and I don't think Ron DeSantis will be talking about that. No. And and by the way, I'm going to go one step further. I didn't, boy, I did not see this conversation coming, but we're here. Let's have it. I don't know if any of that's true. It could just been a, a, a douchebag who let go. Could be. Who was drunk. And I, you know what he, but even if, the, but even if the douchebag had access to a public toilet, I mean, this, trust me, I was out there, man, I'm 50, I'm 50 something years old. Uh, I probably need to go a little more than when more often than when I was 20. Yeah. I'm always yeah. looking for a public toilet. Yeah. 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 So, so that's why it crossed my mind right away. Yeah. I was like, man, this city is great, but they ain't uh, got no public toilets. Yeah. No, there are no public. Chicago toilets. doesn't either. Yeah. Now I've been to places that do have a lot of public toilets mm-hmm. and they hire people to keep them clean. Yeah. You know, wouldn't you know it? Those same countries also have, a lot more. They also have like free medical care and mental health support that we don't have. Yeah. So a lot of these things are connected. But somebody like Ron DeSantis, who, by the way, is a political animal and he's not a dummy. Yes. Uh, if I can use that word, he knew why he went to San Francisco because he knew there's rich people there. Yes. And he, he read that there are a lot of rich people there who are tired of having poor people around and they want to clean up the, the, they want to clean up the mess that was created by the very conditions that gave them their wealth and privilege. Yeah. So, yeah, um, we live in a this bizarrely reactionary sort of pseudo Calvinist society where people believe that poverty is a moral failing and not a, a not a necessity of a capitalist system that creates and funnels wealth upward. Yeah in massive to a massive degree. So we blame the poor for being poor. And and sadly, this is the worst part. We convince poor people 
that they deserve to be poor. And we convince everyone above them, you know, quote unquote, above them that they deserve to be yeah. poor. So, you know, all it takes is, and if you want to make enemies of the rich people and, and their sycophants, all you got to do is say you're coming to look out for the poor people. Yeah. Then they'll lose their minds. Yeah. That was a great riff, Sam. All right. Uh, we'll move on. Uh, let's see. What do I got? A couple running out of time. I knew this would happen. I think I'll go with <laughs> get your thoughts on the bears and her property tax. I huh. uh, might as well uh, uh, force you to deal with one of my obsessions these days. Um, so the Chicago bears, we, I talk about this all this time on the show are looking to get out of their deal with soldier field. They still have, I don't know, 10 years left on it, but nah, it's not good enough. They want out. Uh, the city spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars fixing it up, uh, for their needs 20 years ago. They go, well, their needs have changed. Uh, so they want to move. I always point out that the bears are an absolutely dreadful football team. If you're talking about the product on the field are God awful. So if, Anything destroys the notion that there's a meritocracy in our country. It's the bears with that big old bear paw out looking for a handout uh, to build a football field that they don't absolutely need because they got a perfectly fine one for the next 10 years. Uh, And um, Lori Lightfoot, to her credit, at one point, Sam, uh, when when the conversation came up, said the bears should not be worried about getting out of Soldier Field lease. They should be worried about beating Green Bay. And boy, did she get mocked by cranes. That's on time. Tying it all in. Oh, that's not the point, Madam Mayor. Uh, Anyway, so uh, Kevin Warren, who's the president of Chicago Bears, uh, is in negotiating with Arlington Heights uh, to build a bear stadium in Arlington Heights. And the issue on the table is property tax. Uh, He wants property tax consistency. That's what he says. He doesn't want a handout. He wants property tax consistency. Property tax consistency, ladies and gentlemen, means a cap on the amount of money that the bears pay for owning property in Arlington Heights. Uh, Instead of having that property taxes rise with the value of their land, like the rest of us, uh, they want it capped at a certain amount so that they're paying the same amount of property taxes for 20 years, regardless of how much your taxes go up. And I'm just going to tell you this, people in Arlington Heights, if you cap a huge chunk of land in your community so that it's paying the same amount for 20 years, your taxes are going to go up to compensate for it. I know it's a hard one to figure out, folks, but that's what's going to happen. So when they say they don't want a handout, what they mean is we don't want to call it a handout. Sorry, Sam, I didn't mean to go on that. It absolutely uh, is. Well, these are people who believe they deserve yeah. it. They are, they, are, they are better than the rest of us. They, I mean, let's face it, the bears are a really expensive toy for rich people. I mean, it's no offense to the people that actually, you know, spill blood on the field. I have all the respect for the athletes and, you know, to some extent, the coaches. Because, um, you know, most of them are former players. But the people that, quote unquote, own the team, parasites, wealthy parasites. Um, But unfortunately, again, as we were just talking about, our entire society is built to cater to people like that. And they know it, or at least they they sense it or believe it. And they expect it. You know, it's why these sports teams are, if they're not actually always moving to other cities, they're threatening to move. So they get, you know, sweet stadium deals. It happens almost in every city, in every sports market. It's it's almost there's 
this, it's almost to the point where it's not, it's always happening somewhere. There's at least one major professional sports team, which is trying to, you know, extort a new stadium deal out of the local municipality mm. or the state, whatever. And they're usually successful. If they don't get what they want from where they are, then they find a better deal somewhere else. That's why the Raiders moved to Las Vegas and the, the A's, the Oakland A's might be the Las Vegas A's at some mm-hmm. point. And that's why the Bears ownership is doing what they're doing. They just want a better deal. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if the deal they have is good. They, they deserve a better deal. They deserve a new stadium that's not going to cost them what it should, that they don't have to come out of their pockets for. This is what our society is for. It's to make rich people happy. So do you see any residual benefit uh, to Chicago retaining the Bears? Uh, in other words, if the Bears left tomorrow, if I mean, not even going to a suburb like Arlington Heights, but if they moved to Anchorage, Alaska, just making that up, I don't know where it came from. Uh, do you think that Chicago will have lost something of significance? No. No. Um, sports fandom now is, you know, the ticket prices are really expensive. Uh, <laughs> for one beer at a sports stadium, I could buy a whole case <laughs> and have, a f- have some change left over. So it's a very expensive outing. And most of us are probably just going to, if we're going to watch it all, we're going to watch it on TV anyway, you know. Um, so the Bears are going to make, and that that leads into another little important detail. The Bears are going to make money off the you know league TV deal anyway, no matter where they are. They're going to get a slice of that. Um. So, but you know, as a cit- lifelong citizen of of Chicago, bye. Yeah. Uh, you because Bears fans will be Bears fans no matter where the Bears are. You know, you have. You have like Jets fans, Bengals fans all over Chicago. You know, you see, you can go to like, there's bars around here. Yeah. You see the flag of a, a team from another city hanging there and nobody cares. No one bats right. an eye. Cause it's just, that, that's how it is. People move around. Yeah. They, they watch their teams on TV on satellite yeah. or whatever. It, yeah. It's not a big, I mean, as far as fandom is concerned, there'll be that hand relative handful of people who have season tickets and personal seat licenses or whatever, who can afford to go to all those games and tailgate and whatever, but that's a pretty small percentage of the, of the local population. Um, I I, I won't feel too bad for them. I'll put it this way. Uh, If giving a handout to the bears and that's what it is, is a handout Mm -hmm. uh, has a larger public benefit. Like, and the one I'm thinking about right now is uh, the Southworks uh, steel facility, the old Southworks steel facility, Delmarie Cobb, shout out to you. Uh, This was your great proposal she came on the show about a week ago uh to uh, remediate that area which has been abandoned by capitalism uh many years ago and they they they, no one knows what to do with it because there's a chunk of like old the old foundation the concrete foundation is there uh, and lord knows what toxins are in the soil uh so it's going to take some investment to get that land ready for development and it's been just sitting there because literally there's no market driven answer to it uh if you could cut a deal that enables that land to be remediated i'd be interested in talking about it 
Well, I would, I, I look at it this way. It's, it goes back to that question of ownership. Um, if the bears are not a civic property, they're private property and they sell themselves to the public based on some misguided, in my opinion, misguided notion of civic pride. Um, I can't be proud of something that is, that I have no say in, you know, it's like saying, uh, okay, that I won't use that example, but, um, I have, I have no control over what the bears do. Why should I care what they do? You know what I'm saying? It's not mm -hmm. something that affects me. You know, I may watch a game if they get, you know, a better offensive line and some quality receivers. But again, at, at the end, you know, whether they win or lose, it doesn't affect my life one bit. So why should I care what they do? Yeah. Why should I be willing to have higher property taxes? Or it's not even about my personal property taxes. Why should the city of Chicago make an investment in something that the people of Chicago do not own? If, if the city of Chicago owned the Bears, then we should be talking about it. Yeah. But they, uh, part, part of my friends, the Bears can fuck off for all I care. Uh, and, and just so we make something very clear about a tax, and Sam pointed this out to me in our pre-show conversation. Uh, if the Bears were to cut a deal with Arlington Heights, where Arlington Heights and the school districts in the area agreed to limit the amount that the Bears have to pay over the next, I don't know how many years uh, of that deal. The Bear, that does not mean the Bears' profits will be capped. Right. This is a point that Sam made before we went on the air. Let me give you that analogy. Yes, go. The analogy is like if if I buy a six flat and I somehow get the county and the city to cap the cap my property taxes, that means I can jack up the rent uh, as much as I want, as much as the market will bear in this area, which is quite a lot. And I can keep making more and more profits. And guess who's going to pick up the tab? It's my neighbors mm -hmm. because the city and the county is going to want to get that revenue from somewhere. And if they cap my income taxes, I'm still making a profit. Someone's going to be paying and it ain't going to be me because yeah. I got that sweet deal. Yeah. Uh, and that's like a really small scale example of what the bears are trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a great analogy. And so I'm just going to close by giving credit to the school districts of Arlington Heights and the surrounding areas that are negotiating with the Bears. They are acting on behalf of the taxpayers in Arlington Heights and the students in their district in a way that the Chicago Board of Education has never acted, ever. The, up until now, the Chicago Board of Education, the members of that board have essentially been rubber stamps for Rahm and Daly uh, and the lesser degree, Lori Lightfoot, on any silly TIF deal that they had to sign off on. Because they're giving up money to uh, those developers when uh, the TIF deal is, is, is negotiated. Uh, and so the Board of Education Chicago was just completely thrown away its oversight and allowed Mayor Rahm to cut any deal he wants or Mayor Daly to cut any deal he wants. Uh, and what we're seeing here in Arlington Heights is mind-blowing. We've never seen that in the city of Chicago. We've never seen the Board of Education in the city of Chicago stand up on behalf of its students or taxpayers ever. Well, well, first of all, Ben, the board is not elected. It's appointed. Yes. But also there is a sort of a 
I don't say populism thing, but there is a, okay, let me just spell it out. The board, the school system of Chicago serves two purposes. One, to warehouse the children of the poor. It, this is, and this is my view of what the people who run it, this is how they view us. But it also has another purpose, and that's where you see a lot of the resources go. It's to try to keep the middle, I don't know, what would you call the middle, upper middle class tax base in the city. So that's why you've seen the explosion of the selective enrollment uh, system and gimmicks in the public school system, because they're doing they're bending over backwards to cater to people with a little bit of money who are paying the property, the higher property taxes in the city. But they find ways to shuffle around the resources and, you know, they're not so keen on making sure that the poorer people have what they need in the school system. But also it is the school system is what you're saying. It's a it's a it's a big money bag. Yeah. So some of it will be spent to keep certain people happy. The rest of it, you know, they'll spend a, a somewhat relatively paltry amount shuffling around the rest of the people who don't really matter and who don't really whose voices and well-being don't really matter. But and meanwhile, it's also the big money bag that you can use to justify the you know, drawing in this money and then paying it out to your, your cronies and whatnot yeah. into these projects. So yeah, it's, it sucks. Uh, anyway, a, uh, enough leftyism for the day. The, I don't think people city of Chicago have heard such uh, unvarnished leftyism, uh, Sam, as we've had in the last hour. Bro, bro, you, you bring me back to talk about Ukraine. You're going to hear a lot more. Oh my goodness. Uh, Sam and I had about 10 minutes on Ukraine and then I said, Sam, we got to do a show today, but it is fascinating to a degree, the manipulation of the public in this country. I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, the United States role. And, you know, and we'll just leave it at that because anytime yeah. you say anything, you know, it's like, Oh, you're a Putin puppet. No, I'm not a Putin puppet. <laughs> I'm not, I got a independent mind, but right. well, that that means I'm that not a puppet. even that yeah. response tells you who the real puppet is. All right. Very good. Sam Holloway is his name. Uh, he is a heroic firefighter and huh. dear. <laughs> <I'm laughing. laughs> uh, and he also does voiceover work, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I don't know if you still been many those. years, many years since I've done that. Oh, oh well. maybe after I retire, I'll try to get back into it. Yeah, you should get back into it. Good, good voice. Right. Anyway, thanks so much, Sam. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Uh, yes, I also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job, and I think Sam will agree with me when I say, Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. <laughs> Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more, all at chicagoreader.com. If you want to follow the Ben Jarofsky show on Instagram, it's easy. Just at Benny J show or follow the Ben Jarofsky show on all your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.